You're not a fiduciary if you don't know what your client's life insurance is costing them. Not the premium, folks, but the actual costs of the insurance policy. That's what advisors think that they grasp. But when you pull back the curtain, you see that insurance costs are often excessive. But the illustration will never tell you that. I've got some guys here who are ripping the veneer off the insurance industry. They are Barry Flagg of Verolytic and Steve Zeiger of KB Financial. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So let's start in here. What is an insurance illustration? Barry, you want to start off and I'll uh, add in a little more color? Sure. Uh, so... Uh, Insurance illustrations were created in the 1980s uh, with the advent of a new type of product called Universal Life, new back then, called Universal Life, uh, where premiums were calculated using computers in the, uh, in the offices of the insurance professionals. This differed from prior to 1980 when premiums were calculated by actuaries uh, and since I'm the son of an actuary, I can make fun of actuaries. They were calculated by actuaries in dark rooms with the green visors and the pocket protectors and the whole nine. But the premiums were given to the insurance professionals prior to 19, the ninth, prior to the advent of universal life. But then with the advent of universal life, insurance kind of, the, the, uh, the, the, the insurance professionals could calculate the premiums in their offices. And so the national association of insurance commissioners said, well, wait a minute, if we're having two different people calculate these illustrations, these premiums differently, we need to make sure that there's some consistency between the way the actuaries are calculating the premiums and the insurance professionals are calculating the premiums. And since the insurance professionals get paid when they sell a, a premium, there's an inducement or an incentive for that premium to be as low as possible. So the National Association of Insurance Commissioners came out with regs called the Illustrations Model Regulation that says, here's what you need to do in order to calculate premiums similarly. So that consumers, because back then there was no way, no, absolutely no way to understand what's actually being charged inside the policy. So this illustrations model regulation was intended to provide guidance for calculating premiums similarly so that the premium would be a, pro a rough proxy of the cost. Uh, so the, so in the illustrations model regulation, an insurance illustration is a depiction, a depiction of what could happen under certain situations that are supposed to be controlled by this insurance model regulation. But as we'll talk about today, that has been a fool's errand. They can't control it. They're trying to regulate the outcome, and it simply has not worked. So picture this illustration. It's 50 pages long, right? If I'm 50 years old, the illustration is going to go from age 50 to age 120. So there's 70 rows of numbers. And then there are five to 10 columns of numbers. So you can imagine it's pretty difficult to compare one illustration versus another illustration because there are thousands of different points, one at 0%, one at 5%, one at 5.65%. That's what really makes Verolytic so easy because Verolytic benchmarks each illustration against the life insurance industry benchmarks. And you can easily see 
where you fall along continuum. Wow, my costs are lower than everyone else's. Great, let's party. My costs are the same as everyone else's. Okay, I'm just average. Can I improve upon that? Wow, my costs are much higher than everyone else's. I, I need to find someone who knows how to use this research. And the, the second thing I wanted to say about, about illustrations is it's they, I remember the first time I heard this, illustrations commingle cost and performance. You take a step back, well, what on earth does that mean? So I think the easiest way to think about that is let's, pre let's pretend we're all looking at an illustration and in the upper right, it says a 5% rate of return. An illustration at a 5% rate of return, logically people would think, hmm, the insurance company is earning 6% on their money. They're gonna take 1% for their blimp and their stadium and the actuary and all their costs. And it'll leave me with 100 basis points less, 5%. But an illustration, it's impossible to tell whether they're really thinking that they're crediting 15%, charging me the difference between 15% and 5% and leaving me with 5%. It's impossible to tell which one's which. And that's what really makes illustrations confusing, misleading, and comparing them fundamentally inappropriate. The crediting rate that you see in the illustration is a net of expenses crediting rate that it is yeah, let, me, let me interject here what that credit what the meaningfulness of that crediting rate is and and this is one of the things that the naic has been been playing whack-a-mole with in trying to regulate so if you put money into a policy uh into a, a policy that has cash value a permanent policy not a term policy if you put money into a policy that lasts longer than life expectancy the money goes into the account. The insurance company deducts costs, cost of insurance, premium loads, administration expenses, sometimes account 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 value based like wrap fees. So they, they deduct their costs. Whatever's left over earns something. It earns an interest rate or it's invested in mutual fund like accounts and it, earn, and it grows or, or doesn't grow. But whatever that growth is, whatever that interest is, that reduces what the client has to pay to cover those costs. The costs are the costs. Those costs have to be covered for the, for the policy to last. So the cost either is covered by the client's money or earnings on the client's money. And so the game that the illustration beauty contest does is the higher you can make the assumed return, the lower the premium, the, the lower the apparent premium that the client has to pay. But ultimately, those costs have to be covered. And so if those earnings assumptions at the beginning don't actually come true, which is what Steve was talking about, if they don't actually come true, then the client gets a premium call for more than they originally were quoted a bait and switch, if you will. And this is in universal life insurance policy illustrations. All forms of insurance in less guaranteed. So for instance, a whole life policy has a guaranteed premium 
but the number of payments that are required are more often than not, not guaranteed. So while the maximum the insurance company can charge per year is guaranteed, you know, a whole life premium, a whole life policy might quote a 10 pay and the 10 pay can turn into a 20 pay or a forever pay. If this same thing happens where the interest rate required to make the, the illustration work required to meet expectations, if that interest rate doesn't come true, then the client will have to get, will, will get a premium call and will have to pay more to keep the coverage going. And as Steve said earlier, Knowing whether or not that rate of return, what that rate of return is in, in some cases, and whether that rate of return is reasonable is impossible to tell from an illustration alone. So let's just summarize. So the illustration, it's really not a representation of what's going to happen in the future, right? It's, it's really not a forecast of what's going to happen in the future. It's not a prediction of what's going to happen in the future. It's really an explanation of how does this thing work? Right. It's it's a lesson in and, and it maybe says, hey, what happens if I lower this? What what happens? But again, it's not a representation. It's not a forecast. It's not a prediction. It's really how does this work? So what if analysis? What if I pay? So I'm doing my cash flow planning in my retirement plan. And I say, you know, I don't want to have to pay premiums in retirement. So what if I increase the premium? What if I decrease the premium? It is a good what if. To analysis tool, it is, and Steve used the word misleading, fundamentally inappropriate, and unreliable. Those are not his words. FINRA deems illustration comparisons misleading. The Society of Actuaries deems comparing illustrations fun, not just inappropriate, fundamentally inappropriate. And the OCC, the regulator for the uh, largest body of, of fiduciaries uh, in the United States, uh, na national banks, uh, uh, have a book, they, they issue a book for unique and hard to value assets, which includes a chapter for life insurance. And in that chapter, they say, these illustrations are subject to a high degree of fluctuation and not reliable, therefore not reliable for comparing, you know, which policy is better or not. As Steve said, these are 50 pages long uh, and uh, they include literally thousands of numbers. And so it is difficult sitting, seeing one on paper right in front of you is difficult to get your head around. Seeing it online is arguably impossible. Um, uh, so for what, for what it, that's worth. Okay. What does it mean for a policy to be properly structured? So I often hear insurance professionals uh, who are more who, who are more on the salesperson side of insurance professional than the fiduciary orientation of insurance professional. I often hear them say, you know, I know how to properly structure a policy. I structure it properly. Others don't. And when I ask them, what does that mean? Like you just asked us, you know, very few have a good answer for that, at least in my experience. Uh, properly structured from a fiduciary perspective is uh, a structure that reduces costs so that they're justified relative to benefits. Uh, it structures the policy where the, the, the illustrated expectations are reasonable to expect. Uh, and uh, 
the risks uh, of underperformance are appropriate to the client's risk profile. And, and those can be all kinds of different things, but I'll give you a couple examples. So there are products that are specifically designed for uh, accumulating cash value, accumulating account values. Uh, there are product, products that are specifically designed for providing the maximum amount of death benefit or the minimum amount of premium. And those policies, each of those, uh, po the policies that do well in each of those circumstances have their costs structured differently. For instance, if it's a policy that is that you're we're trying to put as much money into it as possible, you want low premium loads in the same way that you don't want to put uh, money into a mutual fund that has a sales load, which almost none do anymore. You want your, your money to go, you want as much money working as possible. So you want low premium loads and low account value-based fees if you're trying to grow the account. On the other side, if you're trying to put in as little as possible and you're trying to get the maximum death benefit per premium, then premium loads don't matter as much. And cost of insurance charges, which are the biggest expense, particularly in a uh, minimum premium defined death benefit design, cost of insurance charges are 85% of total cost. So you want to make doggone sure that your cost of insurance charges are as low as possible. Those are examples of properly structured for the different clients, goals, circumstances, objectives, and constraints. That is to give a, a sort of a funny analogy. Um, I was speaking with a guy who's really into cars a couple of days ago and he has his policies are accumulation policies so they all say the word accumulation in them but he purchased them for death benefit purposes not accumulation purposes and i said to him you know i do this for a living and, and i know you don't do this for a living but let me give you an analogy let's pretend that you wanted to design an suv to go through the woods and over bales of hay and through rivers and stuff. But you design it on the chassis of a sports car. How do you think that would work out? And he said, oh, well, the chassis of the sports car is designed to be really light, really nimble, and you give up some strength in exchange for, I said, exactly. So we're talking about the structure of the policy. There are certain policies that are designed to accumulate cash, others that are designed for maximum death benefit. Just like the chassis of a car is designed to get you down the highway, but if you take that car four-wheeling by, by lunchtime, you're going to need a new car. So can everybody see my screen with some little red pop-outs on it? Okay. So in the upper right, this illustration is based on an initial rate of 4.95%. What, what initial rate? What does initial rate mean? It's how much is the insurance company crediting on the person's, on the policy owner's account today. Okay, so that's also called the crediting rate? Yes. Or it's also called the earnings rate? Yeah, so not frequently, but yeah. Not, not for this product type, but but for a different product type, yes, it would be called the earnings rate. Okay, so the credit so rate is 4.95%. Right. Now we're going to do is we're not going to look at the illustration because we already learned that the illustration can be misleading and comparing illustrations can be fundamentally inappropriate. 
Now we want to do is we want to look at what's the premium, what's the premium charge, what's the admin charge, what's the cost of insurance charge, and how much is the insurance company crediting? So now we've opened up the black box, right? You can look at this almost like it's an Excel spreadsheet. This is from the insurance company. We had them produce a special report that's not part of the illustration. Ah. It's a special report that they can produce for us. Did all of them do that? All not. So variable life, indexed universal life, and universal life, the insurance company can produce this. For they whole can, life, they, okay, they won't. Sorry, I just, I have, the details matter so much here, Stephen. I'm sorry. They can produce it or they have to produce it. And if you ask for it, they have to give it to you. Or it's just, if you ask, they might give it to you. Which one is it? Uh, you, usually they'll give it. Sometimes you got to push. As the financial advisor representing the consumer, does the consumer have a legal right to this information from the insurance company? For variable products, yes. Variable meaning variable life, universal life, anything that goes with the market is based on the performance of an index or the market. The market, yes. So not if whole it life. If it says variable in the name of the product, they, they are required by law to produce this information. If it's indexed or universal, they're not required, but they but they should be able to produce this. They should. Yeah. Okay. Should. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now what we've done is we've picked out the 25th year, right? And you can see the whatever in this example, the premium is no longer due, right? The premium charge this year, there is no premium charge. There's an admin charge of $49,000. There's an insurance charge of $246,000. There's an amount credit of $348,000. And the cash value of the policy is currently $1.828 million. Now, quick math. If you have $1.828 million in the bank in your Christmas or Hanukkah club, and the bank is going to credit you 5% on your money. 4.9, sorry, Stephen, 4.95%, which was right. the the crediting rate that we described earlier. So, okay. So it's the, you said five, but it's really 4.95. I'm just, I'm just imagining. I'm just, pl you're just playing round. a game with you. Okay. Okay. You're going to put your money into Zyger Bank and Trust for your Christmas account or Hanukkah account. And we promise to pay you a 5% return on your money. So if you gave us $1.828 million at 5% at the end of the year, how much do you think you would have earned? A little less than a hundred. Yeah, so 10% would be 180 grand. So 5% has got to be about 90 grand. 90 grand. But there, but this insurance company is crediting $1.828 million, a 19.07% rate of return. When at the top of the illustration, it's everyone thinks 4.95%. Steve, let, let, me let me take issue with one word. You said the insurance company is crediting. The insurance company has to credit they're they're they're, they're currently crediting 4.95 but in the 25th year to make their illustration work they will have to credit 19.07 percent in that year to meet illustrated expectations they're not crediting that they will have to 25 years from now yes correct and if they don't it doesn't work right my policy will fall apart because my policy won't be able to afford this year's 
admin charge of approximately 50 grand and my insurance charges of another 250 grand. Right? I'm going to be charged $300,000 in costs. And if I don't have that amount, I, I can't, the policy can't afford itself. So, so we're not here to say whether this insurance company can credit 19.07% or whether they can't. What we're trying to point out is unless you look at this, this page, unless you look at this report, you'll never know that what looks like a 4.95% conservative rate of return is actually an aggressive 19% rate of return. And it's impossible to figure out from the illustration, it can only be determined based on this supplemental report that's usually not asked for by the fiduciary or the agent or the client. But it should and, be- And you've got to do that math. And you got to do the math that Steve just did by hand. It is nowhere in the illustration, either by hand, you got to do it by hand for every single year, or you get a Verilitic report like Steve does. Right. So, so, okay. So what you're saying that you did there, just to refresh, just to review the math, what we did was we took the report that we took the illustration that was showing a crediting rate of 4.95%. We then went to the report that the insurance company gave us that showed the illustration assumptions. And those assumptions showed that in the 25th year, it would be $348,731 that would have to be credited in order to overcome the ad admin contract charges and the insurance charges added together to overcome the expenses of this policy in year 25, the amount credited would have to be $348,000, which would be a 19% rate of return, not a 4.95% rate of return. That is nearly four times the rate of return that was illustrated in the illustration that the insurance company gave. If you did not have this illustration assumptions document, you would not understand the preposterousness of only 4.95% actually being credited because you would not understand the expense shortfall that the policy would be bearing in the 25th year. Nor the aggressiveness of the performance assumptions. Okay. So I'm going to switch slides for a second. So now we have, this is one of the reports from Verilytic, right? And so in this particular, not the example we just showed, another example, the insurance company was crediting 4.95% in the illustration, but the Verilytic mathematicians were able to determine that there was an additional 4.5%. 4.56% bonus rate that wasn't in the illustration, which means the total return is 9.51%. That's what's required, but the illustration was only showing 4.95%. So that's one of the tools we use to help fiduciaries and clients make better decisions. Yeah, so the illustrations, remember back to what is an illustration? The illustrations model regulation was an effort to try to normalize the way insurance companies uh, calculate premiums and cash values. 
And uh, that that illustrations model regulation was promulgated 1985 era. In 2015, the NAIC of their own conclusion said, well, wait a minute, we got insurance companies calculating premiums using apparently similar crediting rates, but vastly different crediting rates. So they came out with AG 49 to fix it, right? So the 1995, they tried to fix it. 2015, they tried to fix it. Then they came out with, then they concluded, uh, again, of their own conclusion that AG 49 didn't work. So they came out with AG 49A. And this year, they've concluded again that their regulatory methodology didn't work. So they came out with AG 49B going into effect, I think, this May. So we got 19, illustrated the model regulation in 1995, AG 49. A, AG 49B, three times a charm. I mean, it is their approach. They're trying to regulate the inputs and the outputs instead of what fiduciaries do. Fiduciaries don't try to create some mechanism for generating a hypothetical proposal that can compare to some other hypothetical proposal, neither of which will ever come true. Fiduciaries analyze costs. Are costs justified relative to benefits? Fiduciaries evaluate the uh, reasonableness of performance expectations. An aggressive investor will have a, 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 an aggressive client, a client with an aggressive profile, will have a different risk tolerance than somebody who has a conservative risk profile. And so we shouldn't try to regulate the return. We should evaluate the reasonableness of the return and then assess the risk of underperformance relative to client risk tolerance. So fiduciaries don't compare hypotheticals using a failed regulatory regime. Fiduciaries analyze costs, evaluate performance, and assess risks. Unfreaking believable, you guys. Unbelievable. So there's so much more to it than a lot of advisors realize. And I wish it was, I could say, well, it's just the new advisors. But it's not because there are people that have been in this for years that have no idea what you just showed us. Well, and, and let me say, so in 1985, sorry, sorry, in 1995, when they came out with the illustrations of model regulation, I, I'm not suggesting for a moment it was not well intended. There was no means of, of, of analyzing costs, evaluating performance. There was no Morningstar for life insurance. So the illustrations model regulation was well intended. I think their efforts to improve it are well intended. They're un, they're, they're recognizing the abuses and they're trying to fix it, but they come from a a world that is not doesn't have a fiduciary orientation. So they don't have the fiduciary framework or or, or thought process of cost performance and risk, cost performance and risk, and so they're trying to fix a flawed regulatory regime all with good intentions. I do not, this is not, you know, some conspiracy to defraud consumers. I think in some cases it ends up being that, not a conspiracy, but it ends up being uh, a misrepresentation that induces a consumer to buy something they wouldn't otherwise have bought. But it's not It's not with, with ill intent. It's all well-intended. It just needs to have more fiduciary orientation to it. Well, yeah, I mean, the fiduciaries have to bring fiduciary, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's your responsibility to be a fiduciary in this kind of a situation. 
And fiduciary is not just something that you write on your website. It's carrying out analyses such as these to gain the information that the non-fiduciaries are going to present to you. Sarah, you just, you're making me laugh because Steve can tell you, there is a uh, growing number of insurance distribution organizations that are putting fiduciary into their name. Because it's a, I mean, it's a good marketing term right now, right? Because the, the the awareness of of the of the importance of of fiduciary practices is is on the rise with the consumer, right? So there are a growing number of insurance organizations putting the word fiduciary into their name. But as you said, it's not a marketing principle; it's an operating principle. And so, just because somebody puts fiduciary into their name you know, don't, don't automatically assume that they operate based on fiduciary principles. Uh, if you're a fiduciary, ask them about their operating principles. Ask them, do they provide cost disclosures to their clients? Not upon request. As a matter of course, do they provide cost, do they provide cost disclosures? Do they uh, provide an evaluation of the reasonableness of performance requirements? Do they do a risk assessment for underperformance? That's what fiduciaries do. That's what organizations who support fiduciaries do. So you are, I couldn't agree more that it is, it is not the word fiduciary. It is, do you behave or do you operate like a fiduciary or to support a fiduciary? I mean, and you know, the advisors, I, everyone wants to say, well, I'm a fee-only advisor and I'm a fiduciary. And then there are those fiduciary principles, the five fiduciary principles that everybody likes to recite. But I wish that there was more acknowledgement of actions like these that fiduciaries need to take, because I think there's this whole marketing chant but then how, what are the operational duties of a fiduciary? This is one of them. There are many others. That's not emphasized. What's emphasized is the virtue signaling aspect of being a fiduciary. New York Court of Appeals constitutionally affirmed regulated Regulation 187. So what exactly does this mean? And I think it's a, I think, Sarah, it's a great tie-in because the New York regulation actually uses the fiduciary language that the two of you just spoke about. The regulation requires use of care, skill, prudence, and due diligence, right? And so if we, if we run down to a an RIA together, what's that RIA gonna do when they're managing our money? Well, they're gonna they're gonna benchmark our performance again, right? They're gonna say, how did your money do? compared to the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average, they benchmark. And, you know, one of the things we spoke about during our uh, webinar a couple of weeks ago was how do you benchmark life insurance? We're doing the same thing. We're looking at cost, performance, and risk, just like, so we're doing that same, I think my, of all of the fiduciary duties, when you, when you start to explore what is each one, due diligence uh, to me is the one that just bang, just running an illustration and stick it in the, sticking it in an Excel program after someone else runs another illustration, that's not due diligence when the regulators are saying, you can't do that, that's forbidden. Does that make sense? So 
Um, the New York State Court of Appeals constitutionally affirmed Regulation 187 on, it was October 20th, 2022. And now uh, California is trying to implement a similar version of this New York best interest regulation. New York and California are both bellwether states. Usually when they implement something, other states follow through. And uh, hopefully this is all you know, better for the consumer. So hold on. So who is the best interest standard <coughs> upon? The insurance agent selling the policy or the fiduciary financial advisor that's helping the client buy the policy? So, so the regulation is clearly written towards the insurance agent, right? Or the, the insurance broker. But every fiduciary ethically should demand that the financial services person involved in the insurance, that they follow the tenets of this regulation, right? So ethically, I think it applies everywhere, right? If I'm a fiduciary in Arizona and I have a client who needs $5 million of life insurance and I haven't read the Arizona regulations, I don't know if there are any, but let's just assume for a moment that there, there aren't the insurance advisor has no obligation to work in the client's best interest. So either A, that the, the fiduciary in Arizona should say to the insurance advisor in Arizona, hey, here's a copy of the New York regulation. Can you follow it? And the person should say, sure, I, I'd love, why wouldn't I want to work in the client's best interest? Or the Arizona fiduciary should introduce the client to an insurance advisor in New York who works under this client's best interest regulation. It's almost like, you know, the, Hippo the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Would you go to a doctor who said, oh, just, you know, by the way, I, I don't work under that motto. Where's the door? I'm not letting you touch my brain if you don't work in my best interest. Same thing here. Is that helpful? If I can add, so, uh... I mean, there are in every profession, there are people who put their own self-interest above the client's interests. I think you'll find plenty of people in the insurance profession that um, believe within the confines of the environment in which they were raised that they're doing what's in the client's best interest. Uh, but the meaning of that, you know, has just been a debate. Uh, the... Uh, New York highest court affirmed the, the Reg 187 because there was a fight over Reg 187. The fight was that the uh, a, a number of associations, a couple of associations for insurance distributors say, no, 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 we're already doing what's in the client's best interest. We're highly regulated. We're doing what's in the client's best interest. Your rules are, are uh, unconstitutionally vague. Uh, and the high court decided, no, uh, they may be different than what you're used to. And that may be why they seem vague to you, but they are built on 200 years, literally, of case law, regulation, litigation on what is broadly and generally and, 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 and proved to be in the client's best interest, which certainly includes what we talked about, cost, performance and risk, right? So uh, I think the, the meaningfulness of the New York best interest rule 
is that for years, I, I know personally, you know, I've struggled with fiduciaries. You know, I say, look, I came from the fiduciary world. I, I'm, I, I ascribe to the same principles you do. Here's how you do apply to life insurance. But then, then somebody else would come in and say, no, 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 that's not the right way to do it. My way is better, right? And so what the New York rule proves or affirms is that, no, 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 the fiduciary way, here's how you apply fiduciary principles to life insurance. And, the, and the, by the way, the New York rule is not a, a pure fiduciary rule by any stretch of the imagination. But as Steve said, it includes some of the major tenants for serving clients' best interests. And, it, it, and, it, and you can hold it up and say, it's not, you know, Steve says this and somebody else says that. No, this is the New York Department of, Regu Department of Financial Services, which, as Steve says, is a bellwether regulator. Uh, and it has gone through the, uh, the the trial court, the appellate court, and the high court in New York to, 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 to affirm that, yes, this is how you apply, at least how you start to apply, clients' best interest rules to insurance products. This is the only state that this is doing this, New York. As is you, as is often the case for New York, uh, California is working on it. Uh, there is a bill in the California Senate working its way through committees right now. Uh, it is expected to pass, or the rumor is anyway, that it is expected to pass later this summer in some form or fashion. Uh, but it's being language is being re rewritten as we speak. Okay, so we're going to wrap this up here. What are the three points you would want people to take from this podcast? Uh, number one, get the detailed expense pages that Steve threw up on the page. They are, they are too often not included automatically in illustrations. The NAIC illustrations model regulation does not require that they be included. So uh, at, if you're a fiduciary, you cannot possibly analyze costs, performance requirements, and risk without those, and, and every insurance company calls them something different. So detailed expense pages is kind of a generic descriptive term, policy accounting pages, but it, it's the year by year disclosure of all policy costs and all performance requirements. Number one, you have to get that page to make a prudent with a capital P decision about any product recommendation to your client. Steve, you wanna take number two? I wish I could be more creative, but yeah, get the, the that detailed expense page really starts to unwrap so you can learn um, everything, right? What if they say, I can't give it to you? Um, so what we what I've done is I've gone into the illustration software on my end and I'll screenshot where the button is to press it to get the report. And I'll send it to the person, right? And eventually they'll, okay, you know, and then they might have some other, well, it has to go to the existing agent, but eventually you get your hands on it, but it can take, you can be delayed for a month, right? Um, so you, you can, just have to be persistent. You, you can generally have, get them, sorry. Yeah. The, the uh, I mean, the math, they, they have to do the math, whether it's printed out on a piece of paper or not. The math is the illustration. So it's the, num it's the number crunching behind the values that are regularly produced, right? So they have to have them. They have to have the values. Some old mainframe computers for some insurance companies that are no longer in the insurance business, 
they would have to reprogram their system to generate those pages. You won't get those from those insurance companies and you got to hire somebody to do that by hand, uh, an actuary or a consultant. That is rare. You can get those pages for most every, but as Steve said, you know, some of the insurance company employees don't even know which button to click to generate the pages. So you might have to ask more than once, but they are generally available. And in general, operate as a fiduciary when evaluating life insurance policies for your clients. I mean, you so using the Uniform Prudent Investor Act as one fiduciary example, fiduciary, Section 7 of the Uniform Prudent Investor Act says you have to justify costs. If you don't get those pages, it's impossible to do your job. Steve mentioned the, the duty to exercise reasonable care, skill, and caution. If you're comparing hypothetical values, you're going to have to explain how comparing hypothetical values that FINRA says is misleading, the Society of Actuaries says is fundamentally inappropriate, and the OCC says is unreliable, you're going to have to explain how that is exercising reasonable care, skill, and caution. It's just to, So to be a fiduciary, you can't do it. You can't, you can't uh, uh, identify whether or not a product recommendation is in client's best interest without those pages. It is just not possible. Okay. Real quick, can you guys just talk about what you do? And I normally don't say this on a podcast, but I'm just going to ask you to do this. And the reason is, I know that a lot of people listening to this are not going to have the diligence or the energy to go out and do these calculations and go get the cost pages themselves. So forgive me, everybody. And I'm not connected financially to either of these guys. This is There's no financial arrangement in between us, okay? So my, mine is really short. Uh, the 50 pages and the thousands of numbers, Verilytic converts to basically two numbers and one page. Uh, and, and so if you are self-initiated like Steve is, uh, then you know, go to www.verilytic.com. By the way, our website sucks right now. We need to update it. But you can go to verilytic.com and you can get the research for life insurance products, cost performance and, and, and uh, risk assessment research for life insurance products that you routinely get from Morningstar if you're in the investment business. If you are not as self-initiated, then call somebody like Steve. Go ahead, Steve. Right. No, simply, I help people understand how to benchmark life insurance. And I help walk them through uh, their Verilytic reports so they can make better decisions whether they're purchasing a new policy or whether they are reviewing their enforced holdings. It's really a matter of, you know, every, you know, lead with education, right? So we walk people through, how do you understand what, um, what the output, what this pricing, pricing and performance research does? Do you help the end client or you help the advisor? Um, it's, a, it, it's usually comes through the, a, there's usually a fiduciary involved, right? So I'm usually helping an attorney, an accountant, an RIA, or a trustee. Um, and sometimes I'm directly helping the consumer or the policy owner. Uh, but at this stage, the, at this stage, you know, we market to fiduciaries. They they just understand this. You know, it's being a fiduciary is in their blood, so they understand this. They want a better outcome for their clients, and once they see a case study using this research, they see that this research can help their clients 
either protect their clients or help their clients have a better outcome. So that's where, that's in the, the market that we operate in. Thanks everybody for listening. Please subscribe to this show so that you're automatically notified of new episodes. We've got a bunch of great guests coming down the pike and we'll hope to catch you in the next one. Thanks everybody. Just a reminder that nothing in this podcast can be interpreted as a product insurance or investment recommendation of any sort. Nothing in this podcast can be interpreted as legal or compliance advice. For any recommendations specific to your or your client's personal situations, please consult a consultant, advisor, or attorney.